Red Hat. Thank you, Marty. If you would be so kind to turn to Revelation uh, 13, we're going to open Revelation 13 today, which is the uh, most comprehensive introduction uh, in the New Testament, anyway, to the Antichrist. We're now reaching the point of Revelation where we're being introduced to the central human figure uh, during the period of the Great Tribulation. This is probably the most graphic, comprehensive illustration of the Antichrist in the New Testament, but it's not the first mention of this character at all. In Scripture, we hear an enormous amount about this central figure in the end-time prophetic realm throughout the Old Testament. He is the epitome of evil in the human realm, just as Satan is the epitome of evil in the angelic realm. He's called many, 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 many different names throughout Scripture. Uh, in Genesis 3.15, he's called the seed of Satan. In Daniel 7.8, he's called the little horn. In Daniel 8.23, he's called the king of fierce countenance. In Daniel 9.26, the king that shall come. In Daniel 9.27, the desolator. In Daniel 11.36, the willful king. These names, of course, reveal character. Uh, and for 2 Thessalonians 2, the man of sin. In 2 Thessalonians 2.8, the son of perdition. In 1 John 2.22, the antichrist. And in, he, and in Revelation 11.7, the beast. Hopefully none of you have named your children these names, even in moments of passion. You beast you, right? Okay. Uh, that's probably what your spouse calls you, husband. You beast you. But anyway, um, anyway, most commonly, yeah, I know I can hear the chatter now. Can you believe Brad knew what you called me last night? The most common name of the... <laughs> Man, we're off on the left foot, veering left here really quick, right? He's known as the Antichrist, which is commonly, would you translate, it just means against Christ. He's also known as the pseudo-Christ, the false Christ, the one who claims to be Christ, obviously is not Christ, but claims to be Christ. So it's, it's intriguing that God spends an enormous amount of time in terms of the amount of ink uh, that he puts on the page describing this coming world ruler, this coming world dictator, so that we would have an understanding of what to expect. Even though we won't be here, we'll be in heaven. God still wants us to know what's coming. Um, remember, one of the reasons for the tribulation is God's judgment of sin. The other reason God writes the book of Revelation, even though you and I will not be here for the vast majority of it, because we'll be in glory, we'll be raptured, we talked about that last week, is he wants you to know that he's in charge. I talk to people on a pretty routine basis, and they look at me and they go, and this is Christians too, the world is just falling apart. Of course it's falling apart. You would expect it to fall apart, Right? This is a moral universe, and we have people that are simply not paying attention to the moral structures that God wrote in. Of course it's going to fall apart. You should expect it. You should not despair, because God's in charge, even as it begins to do what it does when you turn your back on God. So it's proof positive that we're moving in the direction that God wants us to move in, given our rebellion. Obviously, God would want all to repent, but humanity is not going to do that apart from the Holy Spirit. So let's talk about the origin of this character. Genesis 3.15 gives us the very first context to understand the origin of the Antichrist. The seed of the woman is who? The seed of the woman is Messiah. Who's the seed of the serpent? The seed of the serpent is this character, the Antichrist, right? What did, what did, you, what did God say to Adam and Eve and what did he say to the serpent? I will put in between, between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, right? They're going to be at war. Well, the epitaph of both of these, the culmination of both of these, the seed of the woman is the messianic line, and the seed of Satan is the antichrist line. God is the father of Messiah, right? 
Yes, you know God is the father of the Who's the father of the Antichrist? Satan, clearly. So you're going to see that Satan will always be the counterfeiter, the great counterfeiter, and you're going to see that throughout this process as we go. We know a little bit about this person's identity. Daniel 9, 26 tells us that the Antichrist has the same nationality as the people who will destroy Jerusalem and the temple. Who are the people that destroyed Jerusalem and the temple in AD 70? The Romans. The Romans destroyed the temple, destroyed Jerusalem in AD 70. And obviously we know that Antichrist is going to come out of the people groups that made up the ancient Roman Empire. So we know the Antichrist is going to be of European descent. Now, I'm not going to name him today. Okay, I don't know who he is. People that spend a lot of time wasting time on that, I don't think that's what God's intention was. But he tells you some things about it to come. Now, it's important to understand when you read biblical truth regarding the Antichrist, sometimes it's talking about an individual, a person. Sometimes it's talking about a governmental system, right? It's talking about, a, 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 sometimes it's referring to both. You cannot have a kingdom without a king, and every king must have a kingdom, right? So who would, you, who would you view as inseparable with the Third Reich? Who's the king who's inseparable with the Third Reich? Adolf Hitler, right? The Antichrist is inseparable from this coming world empire, this final world empire. You know, in the United States, we speak of the administration and power by using the name of the president, right? We say the Obama administration, the Clinton administration, the Bush administration. It's the same thing here. When scripture describes the Antichrist and they call him the beast here in this passage, sometimes they're describing the man, the individual. Sometimes they're describing the final world governmental system, the dictatorship that is to come, the final world empire. So remember, sometimes it's an individual, sometimes it's the institution. One of the earliest descriptions of this coming world empire is found in Daniel 2. What would be really useful is if you could just take your Bibles, go back to Daniel. We're going to spend about 15 minutes in Daniel. This is the very first arena where you're going to see a lot about this character. Daniel 2, remember Daniel has a vision in Daniel 2 of a great image. With a head of gold, arms and chest of silver, belly and thighs of bronze, feet of clay, I mean legs of iron and feet and toes made of clay. And God was revealing to Daniel the four coming world empires. Empire number one was the Babylonian Empire, that was the head of gold. The next empire was the empire of the Medes and Persians, that's the silver chest and arms. Following them came the Greeks, the Greek empires, the bronze belly and thighs. And then the Roman empires, the iron legs and feet in the historic phase, and then there's a second phase of the Roman Empire where you had what? The feet made out of iron and clay. Very, very brittle at that point in time. So the feet had 10 toes, and the 10 toes in this vision refer to the political and military alliance that's gonna be controlled by the Antichrist in the tribulation period. And remember at the very end of that vision in Daniel 2, Daniel has a vision of what? A great stone cut out of the mountain without hands, right? And the stone comes and does what? Breaks the statue in pieces, crushes the statue in pieces, and the stone grows until it fills the whole earth. What God is telling Daniel is Jesus Christ, the coming Messiah, is that stone. And when he comes back to earth, he's going to smash all human governments, and he's going to rule the planet from the capital city of Jerusalem during the millennium. We're going to get to that in a few weeks. So flip over to Daniel 7. Daniel 7 is our next 
commentary in Scripture on the Antichrist. And you'll notice here in Daniel 2 and uh, verse 3 or 4 and following, you're going to see Daniel's vision of four great beasts. Four great beasts coming out of the sea. And they're like this, the vision of the statue he had in chapter 2. The statue represents four empires. The beast represents four empires. The same four empires. Two pictures. A, a, a statue image and a beast image. They represent the same four empires. Babylon. Then comes Medo-Persia. Then comes Greece. And then comes Rome. Interesting that Daniel sees a lion, a bear, and a leopard. The lion is Babylon, the bear is Medo-Persia, the leopard is Greece, and the fourth beast he struggles trying to describe. And if you go to chapter 7, verse 7, it says, And I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth that devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. So this beast is going to be, this empire, he calls an empire a beast, is going to be far more destructive than any of the previous empires, and it's going to consist of a multinational alliance. Right? That's the ten toes we saw in the image. The ten horns here, he's talking about the ten nations that are going to comprise this final world empire that the, under the authority of the Antichrist at that point in time. Now, if you go to Daniel 7, verse 8, he was contemplating the horns on this beast. He was contemplating these kingdoms. And behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them as three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it and behold, the horns possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great, great boasts. So we have a ten nation alliance that's going to comprise this final world empire that the Antichrist is going to run. But this world dictator is going to destroy three of those kingdoms, three of those nations. And the other seven will obviously submit and then he's going to assume complete control of this alliance for the last three and a half years. You want to find out a little more about the little horn? The little horn is another word for this coming world dictator known as the Antichrist, the Pseudo-Christ, the man of sin, the son of perdition. We're all talking about the same character, right? He's the coming world leader. Daniel 8 describes him as a little horn. Go to Daniel 8, 23. Daniel 8, 23, we find out some more about this character we call the Antichrist. Verse 23. In the latter period of their rule, when the transgressions have run their course... Now, it's pretty interesting. He uses the word transgressions have run their course. Will the tribulation be a period of sin? Ah, pretty intense sin. Satan's in control, and it's pretty nutty at that point in time. So when the transgressions have run their course, a king will arise. He's talking about Antichrist. This king will be insolent and skilled in intrigue. His power will be mighty, <clears throat> but not his own power. He will destroy to an extraordinary degree and prosper and perform his will. He will destroy mighty men and the holy people. Underline the holy people. He's talking about Israel. The holy people is the nation of Israel. Verse 25. And through his shrewdness, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence. He will magnify himself in his heart. Where have we seen this before, right? And he will destroy many while they are at ease. And he will oppose the prince of princes. Who's the prince of princes? Jesus Christ, the Messiah, but he will be broken without human agency. So the, death, the, the character of this Antichrist is being described. It says he'll be insolent. 
Insolent literally means having a fierce face, a face of defiance. He will be a master intimidator. He'll be a brilliant strategist. Where is his power source? Satan himself, over and over, you're going to see that this Antichrist, this pseudo-Christ, is empowered by Satan himself. He will, he will destroy powerful opponents and he will successfully attack Israel. We know that from Jesus told us in Matthew 24, 25. He will conquer using both words. He's going to be a very skilled orator. He's going to be very persuasive. He's going to be very, very convincing. And he'll also use war. So he's going to use war and words to accomplish his objectives. Because he is so successful and prosperous, what's going to happen to his heart? It's going to be filled with pride. Whose heart was filled with pride before him? His father, right? His father, Satan, Lucifer, who said five times in Isaiah 14, I will be like God. This character is a son of Satan, the son of Satan. So he's going to do the same thing. Will anybody on earth be able to cope with this character? Nope. But he says he will be broken without human agency, which means he'll be destroyed, but it won't be humans that do it. Jesus Christ will do it. Now, Daniel 9.27 gives us a little bit more about this guy. Daniel 9.27 tells us that this world leader will sign a seven-year treaty with Israel. Daniel 9.27, and he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. Shavuot means seven Shabbat means Sabbath. The Hebrew Shavim means seven. Shabbat means Sabbath. They should not have put weeks in here. They should have put days. I mean, seven, seven sevens. For the many, for seven, it means seven years. But in the middle of the week, in the middle of the seven years, he will put a stop to sacrifice. He'll stop the Jewish sacrifice in the temple. He'll stop the grain offering. And on the wing of abomination will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed poured out. So in the middle of the tribulation, in the middle of the seven-year period, he's going to break his covenant with Israel. But he's going to sign a covenant with Israel at the beginning of the tribulation. Israel, as you know, is in a lot of, surrounded by friends or enemies. If you pull out a geographical map of Israel, and you look at the size, and you look at the size of the surrounding nations that want Israel destroyed, it kind of takes your breath away. You say, how is it that such a little country could command so much attention? Well, who is the number one enemy of Israel? Lucifer hates Satan because Israel is the source of the Messiah. Who's going to kill Satan? The Messiah. Obviously, he wants them dead. I read a number of interesting commentaries over the demon possession, certainly the demon influence on Adolf Hitler. Adolf Hitler's hatred of the Jews was beyond pathology. It's demonic. And when you listen to his speeches, you absolutely understand that. So this world leader is going to come and he's going to protect Israel up front. He's going to sign a seven-year treaty with him that promises and protections and peace, which is going to be pretty amazing because he's obviously going to solve the Arab-Israeli land dispute. Now, that is going to take some smooth talk and character. If he's going to be able to have both the Jewish state and the Arabs around him who want him destroyed and don't want the land at all, if he's going to cause them to live in peace for three and a half years, he is going to be very persuasive, and he'll probably have a pretty good military behind him anyway. But halfway through that, we know he's going to break that treaty. Let's find out a little bit more about this Antichrist. Daniel 11. So we've gone through Daniel 2, Daniel 7, Daniel 8, Daniel 9, Daniel 11. Clearly, if you want a good biographical sketch of the coming world leader, Daniel's a pretty good place to study. Daniel 11, 36. 
I'm just going to summarize this. It's Daniel 11, 36 to 45, really gives you a character sketch of this character. He will be the most powerful dictator the world has ever known. He will be proud and he will be profane. It says he will not worship any religious god, which is really, really interesting when you read about that. You say, hold it, this guy worships no historical religious god. And that's, of course, in verse uh, 37. He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the desire of women. He's not going to be attracted to women. A lot of commentators say he may be homosexual. I have no clue. But he's going to be inhuman in the sense that he's not attracted to the normal things that most humans are attracted to. The only thing he worships is power. It says, nor will he show regard for any god. I'm in verse 37. For he will magnify himself above them all. Verse 38. Instead, he will honor a god of fortresses. This guy's going to worship military might. And he's going to spend lots of money on military technology. He's going to use his military technology to attack anyone who destroy and destroy them if they, if they uh, don't back his rule. Verse 39 tells you, in essence, he's going to punish his enemies and he's going to pay off his allies with territory. Where is he going to get the territory from? He's going to take it from somebody else by force. So he's forming a ten-nation coalition. We know we have ten toes on a statue at that point in time and ten horns. Those are pictures of those ten nations. And he's going to do a political set of arrangements with them by paying off those to support him and punishing those who don't support him. You want to know where he's going to set up his headquarters? Go to verse 45. Verse 45. He will pitch his tents of his royal pavilion between the seas. What's between the seas? The Dead Sea and the Mediterranean Sea. What's between the Dead Sea and the Mediterranean Sea? Right smack dab in the middle of Israel. That's where his initial headquarters will be. He's going to move to Babylon to the three and a half year mark, but he's going to be in Israel to start with at that point in time. Now his destiny, his long-term destiny is found in 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 8. 2 Thessalonians 2 8. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth. You know what that means? The Lord's going to go, <sighs> this guy is no problem for Jesus Christ, right? Satan is no problem for Jesus Christ either. Now here's the key idea. God is in control of all things, including evil. And one of the reasons I made that the key idea is we look at the world today and it's very easy to believe that the world is falling apart. This world is out of control, man. And can you believe the politicians can't fix it? Of course they can't fix it. Why would you expect them to fix it? The problem is not material. The problem is spiritual. If you refuse to comply with what God says how to live, you're not going to get his blessings. So we're trying to apply human political solutions to spiritual problems. It's not going to work. See, one of our problems, especially here in America, is we believe in the messianic state. We don't cry out to God to solve the problem. We want to elect some politician that's going to pass a rule and make it work. You know, our problems are not political. Our problems are spiritual. So I want you to know that no matter how bad things look, God is always in control. And you're going to see in this chapter, he's clearly in control, including evil. Now, the first time we see this Antichrist is in Revelation 6. And he's portrayed as a rider on a white horse. He's a white knight on a white horse and he's going to conquer, but he's going to use peaceful means, political deal making. He's going to sign a treaty with Israel. 
very charismatic, very persuasive. In chapter 13, you're going to see his true colors. Go to chapter 13, verse 1. And he stood on the sand of the seashore. And I, John, John is writing this, saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads. And on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. Now this is a very logical continuity between chapter 12 and chapter 13. In chapter 12, there was war in heaven, and Michael and Satan are fighting. And what happens to Satan and his forces? Do they get to stay in heaven? No, they get thrown out of heaven and they get thrown down to where? Earth. They go thrown down to earth at that point in time. So Satan, obviously now in chapter 13, verse 1, is on earth and he is looking for ways to continue his war against God. He's confined to earth. Satan wants to do several things. Number one, he does want to destroy Israel. Two, he wants to compel humanity to worship him instead of worshiping God. Right? So he's going to be looking for ways to thwart the plan of God. And it says he's on the sand of the seashore. Biblically, when you see sand of the seashore, it literally translates into an innumerable company. How many sands are there on the seashore? Has anyone counted? <laughs> Probably not. So it's beyond counting. God told Abraham, I'm going to give you children as the sand of the seashore. It's going to be innumerable at that point in time. The sand of the seashore also can represent, and probably does here, the Gentile nations of the world. So Satan is viewed as in the middle of the Gentile nations of the world trying to grasp and control them. And it describes Satan on the, on the, the dragon on the seashore, and he's looking at a beast coming up out of the nations, a beast coming up out of the sea, a beast coming up out of the Gentile nations. Now this is not Fido. This ain't your teacup labradoodle, okay? This is a beast. Wild and rapacious. You could translate it monster. That would be probably not a bad translation. This is a killing machine, a super predator. What it illustrates is that this individual, like a beast, is bloody, brutal, and inhuman. And his government's going to look like that as well. The term beast is used 46 times in the New Testament. 35 of them are in the book of Revelation. And it says, John observes him coming up. It means he's watching this world dictator develop his political and military machine. And he's coming up out of the sea. Now, I've read two sets of commentaries. Number one, the word sea represents Gentile nations, which we agree on. A second one, and John MacArthur would take this point, and it's fascinating, is that the sea represents the abyss. The sea represents the bottomless pit, right? Revelation 11:7. if you're looking for a cross-reference, describes the beast as coming up from where? From the abyss. Now, what's the abyss? The abyss, as we covered two, three weeks ago, is the prison house of demons. It's where demons are incarcerated and tormented. This beast, this Antichrist, will have a human body. Yes? He's going to have a human body. Who's going to possess him? Satan. He's going, to be, he's going to be, at least by a demon, he's going to be possessed by someone from the abyss, from the pit, which is the prison house of demons at that point. So coming up from the sea may mean that this is at the point where he begins to be possessed by Satan. One of the things we know is everything about this person is oratory. He's an intellectual genius. He's going to have unparalleled leadership abilities. He's going to be extremely charismatic. He's going to be the most charismatic leader the world's ever seen. They're all empowered by Satan. It says this beast has ten horns and seven heads. And you would say, that's an odd-looking man. 
It's almost Halloween, or it's after Halloween. It's not talking about the individual here. It's talking about the institution. Remember we said you could be describing the individual or the government? He's now talking about the government. The government that the Antichrist will preside over has ten horns and seven heads. Now, I'll get through that. A horn in the animal kingdom refers to power, to defend or attack, right? An animal has horns. Daniel 7 tells us that this fourth terrible beast has ten horns. We already talked about ten horns being ten nations, ten regions that ally with underneath the authority of the Antichrist. So we know it's a ten nation or ten region coalition. Daniel 2 told us this great statue had ten toes on its feet. It's another word picture the same thing. So the coming world empire is going to be a multinational confederation of people groups. I'm not sure they're talking about nations or regions, but we know they're going to be controlled and commanded by the Antichrist. Revelation 17 tells us that. Historically, we know that the fourth beast was the Roman Empire. Now, when the Roman Empire broke apart, by the way, for those of you that might be interested, the Roman Empire was never conquered. It was never conquered or replaced with anything, right? No one took over Rome and built their own empire in Rome. It literally fragmented. It literally fragmented at that point. And those people groups became the genesis for the nations of modern Europe. So we know that this future coming 10-nation alliance is going to have its core in the European continent it will probably be far broader than just the European continent, but that's going to be the core of it, the rise of Europa. It's going to have seven heads. And you say, okay, Brad, I get the picture that this final world government will have ten component pieces, multinational alliance. What in the world is ten heads or seven heads? If you look at history, there were six, seven successive Gentile empires, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, and this one, this final one. So this empire that is the world empire that's going to be run by the Antichrist is going to be seven, which is a perfect number, on a list of empires that Satan has used to influence planet Earth. Every one of these empires has had an adversarial relationship with Israel. Every one. Surprise, surprise. Does Satan have an adversarial relationship with, with Israel? Of course. So he would work through empires to have that. We would assume that. When you say on his horns were ten diadems, by the way, that's a crown of royalty, a crown of rule at that point. We do know that these ten kingdoms will at one point have autonomy, but when the Antichrist shows up, he's going to control them, he's going to compel them, he's going to retain authority over them, and they're going to give their loyalty to them at that point in time. So we're going to have an empire here at the end stage in the tribulation that looks something like the Roman Empire. It's going to be very comprehensive, except it's going to be worldwide. So the empire to come is not going to be a regional one. It's going to be a global one. We are headed for one world government under the authority of Satan, who then will be destroyed and will get the real one world government under the authority of the Messiah, who will run things for a thousand years from Jerusalem. So we know this one world government under Satan that's coming is temporary. It's going to last exactly three and a half years. Last half of the tribulation is the only time Antichrist really runs the planet. Verse 2. This empire, this beast which I saw, was like a leopard, like a bear, had a mouth like a lion. The dragon gave him his power and great authority. So John is saying this, this beast, this final empire, has the characteristics of a lion, a bear, and a leopard, and all of those beasts are predators. What do predators do? 
they kill, right? He's telling you the character of this world empire will not be benign. It's going to be malignant. It's going to be very, very malignant. It's going to be a beast and it's going to act like a leopard, a bear, and a lion, obviously, at that point in time. It'll have the strengths of them. And the source of the power of this final world empire is going to come from Satan himself. This Antichrist is Satan's masterpiece. This is the man of sin. He worships Satan and Satan possesses him. Remember in Matthew 4, Jesus is in the wilderness. He's being tempted. And Satan comes to Jesus and he makes him a proposition. And he says, if you will fall down and worship me, I will give you what? All the kingdoms of the world. Now, Satan got all the kingdoms of the world at the fall of Adam because Adam renounced his governorship when he committed treason and declared loyalty to Satan. So Satan has control of those to give. What did Jesus tell him? Do any of you know? He said, go pound sand. It's right there in the Greek. Go pound sand, right? He said, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve, right? You know something? Satan came to this character and made him the same offer. Only he took it. He took it. The son of Satan, the counterfeit Christ, said, a deal. I'll fall down and worship you. You give me all the kingdoms of the world. For three and a half years, right? Bad trade, but that's what's happening. Verse three. This is very controversial, but I'm going to try and make a case for it. And I saw one of his heads. This is the, he's talking about the individual now and the empire. As if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed, and the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. So we have this individual, the Antichrist, and he's been killed and resurrected. And the world is astonished at this miracle. You want to cross-reference that? Go to Revelation 17, verse 8. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss and go to destruction. And those who dwell on the earth will wonder whose name has not been written in the Lamb's book of life from the foundation of the world when they see the beast that was and is not and will come. Now this is the key event in the middle of the tribulation that will unite the whole world in worshiping this character. You look at this, you say, I don't care how skilled this person is. No one in the history of the world has been able to unite the whole planet yet. Hasn't happened, right? Even the most powerful empires historically has never controlled everything. How is it that this character is going to be able to control everything? Now, we know he's got supernatural help. Here's one example. Verse 3 says, one of his heads has been slain and his fatal wound was healed. Chapter 17, verse 8 says, The beast that you saw was, is not, and is about to come. And that's repeated twice. What they're describing here is Satan as the master counterfeiter who is going to duplicate Jesus' death and resurrection. They call him the Antichrist, the pseudo-Christ for a reason. The pseudo-Christ does what? Behaves like Jesus. Satan's not stupid. Satan is very non-creative. He can't create anything, but he's a good imitator. The authenticity of Jesus the Messiah came from what? His resurrection. His death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. He's Messiah. He's one of a kind. It's never happened before. Hasn't happened since. He got a brand new body. He's in glory. 
Satan's trying to arrange the death and resurrection of his superstar, the Antichrist, so, because he knows the world will view him as a god and follow him. That's the whole point. Now, people have come to me and said, Brad, the Antichrist really doesn't die. His death and resurrection is faked. Only God can resurrect life. Only God can give life. And that's true. I want you to get your pen out. The word for slain here is the exact same word that's used to describe Jesus' death in Revelation 5-6. In Revelation 5-6, it says, Jesus is described as a lamb standing as if slain. It's the exact same word here to use Antichrist. The term in the Greek, as if slain, literally translates as slain unto death. And in the original Greek, there's no if. So it wouldn't say as if slain. It says as slain unto death. Was Jesus verified to be dead? How do we know that? Eyewitness took a spear, went into the heart cavity. That's how we know blood and water came out. Went right into Jesus' heart cavity, the Roman soldier. So he was verified to be dead at that point in time. It seems... When you look at the Greek, this word slain is a term of sacrifice, which indicates that Satan is trying to duplicate Jesus' sacrificial death. And you say, well, why would that surprise you? Satan's a copycat, right? Satan wants to be what? God the Father. This is his Messiah, the Antichrist. The next week we'll get into the false prophet, which is the Holy Spirit. We're going to see an unholy trinity arranged by Satan to deceive humanity, and guess what? Humanity is going to take the bait. Zechariah 11, if you really want a fascinating cross-reference, Zechariah 11, 12 to 17, it refers to the Antichrist, and verse 17 seems to describe the fatal wound this Antichrist suffers. It says in Zechariah 11:17, a sword will be on his arm and on his right eye. His arm will be totally withered, and his right eye will be blind. It seems that this describes the Antichrist, and if that's true, then it seems obvious that the Antichrist will permanently bear the marks of his death. Who else permanently bears the marks of his death? What did he say to Thomas? Look and see my hands. See the scars. Look at my side. Look at my feet. Satan's a copycat. He is going to try and deceive the world and he's successful at it because this character is going to have visible marks, a withered arm and a blind right eye that will make it obvious that he is the one who was killed and is resurrected. Now, it's true that only God can give life. However, has God ever delegated the ability to resurrect people to saints in the past? Multiple times. Elijah raised... The widow of Zarephath's son. Elisha raised the Shulamite's woman, son who died of a heat stroke. Peter raised Dorcas. And Paul raised Eutychus. You know, if you preach till midnight, somebody's going to fall asleep, fall out of a window and get killed. So he raised him from the dead. All four of those were God delegated the power to raise these people from the dead, subject to God's plan and purpose. Now, who allowed the Antichrist to be born ultimately? Who, who's in control? God did. Who allows Satan to indwell the Antichrist? Who allows the Antichrist to be killed? Who allows Satan to raise him from the dead? Okay. I've talked to people like, well, it's impossible. Only God can raise from the dead. God can delegate the power to raise from the dead whoever he wants to. He still has the power, but he can use various sources to accomplish his purposes. The whole point is in the next phrase. 
The next phrase says, verse 3, And the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. Isn't that Satan's point? It means they were such in wonder that this resurrection occurred. Worldwide media is going to trumpet the Antichrist's resurrection as proof that in fact he is God and everyone's going to buy it. And they're going to follow after him, which means they're going to literally gawk after the beast. And verse 4 even gets worse. And they, the world, worship the dragon. Who's the dragon? Satan, right? Because he gave his power and authority to the beast. Well, yeah, he raised him from the dead. And then they worship the beast. They worship the Antichrist. They worship this man saying, who is like the beast and who is able to wage war with him? So because of this resurrection, the whole world worships the Antichrist and Satan himself. Satan craves worship. He is that he wants God's worship. And now, at this period of time, Satan worship is going to be the norm. Satan worship is going to be as universal as going to church on Sunday and worshiping God. It's going to be the normal at that point in time. Everyone will worship Satan and the beast. Now, the world rejected Jesus' resurrection. You know why? Because Jesus demands righteousness. The world's going to follow after this Antichrist because the Antichrist is going to indulge your sin. He's going to say sin. Just do whatever you want to do, right? So obviously the world's going to like that. It says the world follows after the beast because he's unique. They say, who is like the beast? Yeah, well, there's only been one of the resurrection. They rejected that one. They will also follow after the beast because it says, who is able to make war with the beast? So some of this worship is going to be amazement and some of it's going to be, if you don't worship this character, you're going to die. We know that because he's going to put to death anybody who won't worship him. We are now about the midpoint of the tribulation. We're about halfway through the seven-year period. About halfway through, the beast gets resurrected. And what else does the beast do? We talked about it two weeks ago. Three weeks ago, we said there were two witnesses. They prophesied for three and a half years. And then what happened? The beast who came out of the abyss killed him. Happens at the same time. So God's two witnesses are slain by the beast. God resurrects him, takes him to heaven. That happens immediately after the beast himself is resurrected. What do you think the world's going to say? The beast conquered God's witnesses and the beast was resurrected. I guess Satan's stronger than God is. They will draw that conclusion. It will be a false conclusion, but they will because Satan's a master deceiver. And the world will worship Satan and worship the beast. Verse 5. It's a pretty successful character so far. And there was given him a mouth. We're talking about the Antichrist. I want you to underline the word given. Speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months was given, underline given, to him. And he opened his mouth and blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Daniel 11.36 says, This character will magnify himself above every god. Now I want to define the word blasphemy for you. Blasphemy means to speak against. It means to despise. It means to taunt. It means to curse. Here's the best definition. Blasphemy is the opposite of worship. Blasphemy is the opposite of worship. Worship declares the worth, the value of something. Yes? Were any of you in the 8 o'clock service? We were declaring the worth of Jesus Christ. Blasphemy despises the worth of something. It curses the worth. It despises it. Here's the principle. 
Worship magnifies God and minimizes man. Blasphemy magnifies man and minimizes God. Which side of that aisle do you sh should you be on? Which side of the aisle will the world be on during this period of time? We live in a world of blasphemers. You know, in ancient Israel, blasphemy was a capital crime. You know why? Blasphemy always sought to bring the Creator down to the level of the creation. It was a direct assault on the sovereignty of God. By the way, we live in a pretty blasphemous culture because blasphemy includes making sport of God or making light of God. Treating God as your equal, your buddy, your genie. Every time someone says, yeah, the man upstairs, yeah, I just want to move away because I think there's going to be a lightning strike. <laughs> I won't get too close to that. It's bringing God down to human level because blasphemy always wants to elevate man above God and bring God man below man. Here's another one. Anything that does not treat God as holy is blasphemy. Do we live in a culture of blasphemers? The entire culture is. I've never heard so many potty mouth people in my life. It's interesting that Heinrich Heine is a famous German poet. He is alleged to have said, of course God will forgive me. That's his job. Really? That sounds like God is my servant. We'd call that blasphemy, right? Now, if you want to know who's really in charge, verse 7. I want you to get your pens out again. And it was given to him, underline given, to make war with the saints and overcome them and authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. Here's the principle. Our sovereign God does all things for his glory and our good. Even when we don't understand it. I know that there are things going on in our lives today, in your life and my life, that God is doing for His glory and our good, and we have no comprehension of how that's working. Correct? Do you need to know in order to obey? You need to know who in order to obey. You don't need to know what. You don't need to know why. If you know who, you will not have a problem with obedience. Every time Brad has a problem with obedience is because I failed to understand who I'm dealing with. If you want to be reminded of who you're dealing with, read Job 38 to 41. God asked Job 70 questions. It says, where were you when I created the heavens and the earth? If you want to know who you're dealing with, you're dealing with the creator. Now, this phrase was given to him shows up twice in verse 5, twice in verse 7, and in verse 14 and 15, six times. So this Antichrist, his mouth, his reign, his ability to overcome the world, or the saints, rule the world, was given to him by God. Now here's the interesting question. Why would holy God grant the power to rule the planet to a completely evil creature who hates God? Does that make any logical sense? A holy God delegates gives the authority to run the planet to who? The Antichrist who hates him. And you would say, I don't think that makes any sense. Now, what's the purpose of the Great Tribulation? It's divine judgment on a sinful world. That's one of the purposes. God is using Satan as his instrument of judgment. 
I've said this before and I've almost gotten strung up for it, but one of the ways that God judges the nation is to give them foolish and wicked leaders. Don't, don't hold it. Don't jump off that cliff. Because <laughs> depending on the political party in question, I've always had people go, yeah, and we elected one of them. And I heard it on both sides. Okay. It's far more subtle than what you think it is at that point in time. God has elected you as leader of your family, and some of you are wicked and foolish. So don't, don't, you know, it's always easy to point the finger someplace else. But that's one of the ways God does it. God is using Satan as an instrument of judgment on, on planet Earth, and he's also using Satan as a tool for his glory. I want you to write that down. God is using Satan as a tool for his own glory. Here's one that made me swallow hard. It says that God delegated this character authority to rule, and it says it was given to him to do what? Overcome the saints. You know what that means? God gave the Antichrist the power, the ability to kill you if you're alive. You won't be. You'll be in heaven. We talked about the rapture last week. God's going to give the Antichrist the ability to kill his children. And that's according to the divine purpose of God. Now, this is not happy, happy talk for the health and wealth crowd. Okay, they've left the room a long time ago, right? <laughs> In the tribulation, it will be God's will that many of his followers will be ushered into heaven by means of martyrdom. That will be God's plan. So when you think your life is tough and God is allowing things into your life that he has no right to allow in your life, is he the creator? And you are the creature who has the right to do with you as he chooses. Scripture tells us we're created for his pleasure. Now, the good part of that is God loves us as a father. And because he loves us as a father, who knows best? Father knows best, right? He only does what he does in our lives for love. Verse 8. Now the world, all, all, everybody who dwells in the world is going to worship this character. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life, who has been slain. Verse 8, here's the principle. Everyone will either worship Jesus Christ or the Antichrist. Everyone will either worship Jesus Christ or the Antichrist. It says every single earth dweller, that means those who have rejected Jesus will worship who? The Antichrist, right? There will be no 50 shades of gray. It'll either be black or white. You're going to worship Jesus Christ or you're going to worship the Antichrist. And if you do worship Jesus Christ, what may well happen to you during this period? You may well be martyred. If you do not worship the Antichrist, you will be slaughtered. Because he's going to put a price on your head. It says if you don't worship him, he's capital crime. You know something? It's going to flush out a lot of the fence sitters. You are going to take sides, and you can die on either side of this puppy. Well, here's the, here's the perspective. If I'm martyred, where am I going? Heaven. Isn't that tragic? <laughs> I'm going to leave this life, and I'm going to heaven. Now, if you want to worship the Antichrist, and, and uh, you die, where do you go? Now, that's really tragic. Okay? Here's the truth. You are going to die. I am going to die. We're just talking when, and we're talking destiny. So when you look at this world, and you look at this description, you go, man, this is going to get bad. It's going to get a lot worse than you can even imagine it's going to get. Because God is going to say to humans, you 
who think that you can make life work without me, here's your shot. I'm going to show you the wickedness of your heart. I'm going to reveal Satan for who he is. We know Satan's a deceiver. We know he's an angel of light. Let me tell you, the last three and a half years of the tribulation, the color is going to come off. The mask is going to come off and you're going to see Satan and Antichrist for who they really are, evil incarnate. And we really have no idea how bad it will be. According to God's plan. It doesn't matter how bad this world seems to fall apart. God is on the throne. He is completely in control of his creation. Now, what's really important, it says, everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the Lamb's Book of Life. Is your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life? Yep. You know Jesus Christ is your Savior and Lord. It was written in the Lamb's Book of Life, and you cannot be lost. If you have not personally received Jesus Christ and asked him to come into your life and forgive your sins and save you from your sin and your separation, your name's not written in the Lamb's Book of Life. That means hell is your destination, not heaven. It doesn't automatically happen. You have to consciously choose, and that's what he's saying here. You're going to consciously choose. I would say choose before, not choose later. Okay? Satan can take your life, but he can never destroy your faith. Romans 8. You need to know that, because some of you are, are headed into some pretty serious tribulation in your own life. I know that. It's nothing like this. Nothing like this. But I know many of you are not sailing in calm seas right now. Verse 9, if anyone has an ear, what's missing from that phrase? Remember in chapters 2 and 3, seven times it says, if anyone has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Why is that phrase missing? Churches aren't here. Churches in heaven. We talked about that last week. Church has been raptured. This phrase is not to the churches, it's to those left on planet Earth. And the lesson is, pay attention to the warnings of cunning judgment and repent while there's time. Verse 10. I did not even like this verse when I first read it. My flesh just went, Gah! If anyone is destined for victory, is that what it says? For captivity, to captivity he goes. And I can hear you go, well, duh, right? If anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. And this last phrase is the one that just did me in. Here is the perseverance and faith of the saints. Here's the principle. God's plan for you may include suffering. I almost put will include suffering. In this life, we're all going to get some. But it may include suffering and persecution. So here's the admonition. Trust his plan and don't take matters into your own hands. See, God has destined some believers for prison, some believers for martyrdom, some believers for suffering. God says, accept it, don't fight it. Do you know what Christians will be tempted to do during the tribulation? Now the church is gone. Are people going to come to faith during the tribulation? By the millions. You know what their temptation is going to be? Get a gun and kill those people. They're persecuting me. They're putting me in prison. They executed my sister, my brother, my husband, my wife. Get a 45, send them to Jesus for judgment now. The, the principle of retribution is going to be very strong during this period of time. God says, don't take retribution. If I have destined you for martyrdom, go. And my flesh just goes, yeah. He says, submit to my plan. 
Do not take matters into your own hands. How many of you have ever taken matters into your own hands? How many of you have done it already this morning? <laughs> yeah, I have. I'm just, you know, fessing up here at that point. Fighting an evil spiritual system with physical violence is futile. What is your warfare against? It's not against flesh and blood, right? Ephesians 6 tells us that. So you're, you are to fight, but it says you are to put on the whole armor of God in Ephesians 6. This is going to be serious warfare, but you have to use spiritual weapons, not physical weapons, Ephesians 6. Your faith will be severely tested, by the way, even between now and the time we leave here. The believers who come to faith during the tribulation will experience phenomenal testing, but they will experience victory. Now here's what I want you to go back to. Go back two chapters to Revelation 11:15, and I want you to underline this not in pencil, I want you to underline it in pen. Revelation 11:15, underline in pen. The last part of that verse says, 11:15, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord in Christ, and he will he will reign forever and ever. So in the middle of this life that we are struggling with today and the deterioration of that we see around us, remember this planet is temporal. It's temporary. Presidents come and presidents goes and governments come and government goes and wars come and wars go and that's the way this fallen planet is. But there is the kingdom of Messiah that's coming and he will reign forever and ever and that has to be our perspective. God is in control of everything, including evil. Satan does nothing without God's permission. Someone told me one time that Satan was on a leash, and I said, it ain't short enough. Satan is on the leash that God gives him. Now, the day will come when he's in the lake of fire, and there'll be no leash. He's going to be enclosed at that point. Until then, we walk by faith. Point number two, worship magnifies God and minimizes man. Blasphemy magnifies man and minimizes God. Don't magnify man and minimize God. That's big trouble. Always magnify God. Number three, our sovereign God does all things for his glory and our good, even when you don't understand it, maybe especially when we don't understand it. Verse now, number four, everyone will worship, either Jesus Christ or Antichrist. And the last one, God's plan for you may include suffering. Trust his plan and don't take matters into your own hands. Okay? So we now have the introduction to the man of sin, the son of perdition. Next week we're going to meet his lieutenant, the false prophet, who is going to be the counterfeit Holy Spirit. Okay? So get your big boy and big girl panties on. It's going to get real interesting in here. But remember, Jesus Christ reigns forever and ever. I love you. Now that you know, do.